invite you to direct your attention to the book of Hebrews. The preaching text this morning is taken from the 10th chapter of that book, Hebrews chapter 10. And I invite you to keep your Bibles open after I've read verses 32 through 35. Hebrews 10:32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on the prisoners, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Let me begin this morning by saying that in the diversity of the body of Christ, some Christians should be devoting their pro-life energy to the drafting and passing of legislation that creates laws to protect the unborn. Some Christians should be devoting their pro-life energies to educational efforts that promote the wisdom of chastity before marriage and heterosexual faithfulness in marriage. Some Christians should be devoting their pro-life energies to crisis pregnancy ministries like counseling and housing and health care. Other Christians should be devoting their pro-life energies to adoption services, counseling, foster care, new parent connections. Other Christians should be devoting pro-life energy to post-abortion ministries of counseling and care. Other Christians should be devoting their energies among the pro-life efforts to sidewalk counseling and peaceful public demonstrations of various kinds. Some Christians should specialize in extraordinary intercessory prayer for the pro-life movement. Other Christians should devote extraordinary energy to thinking and writing. Other Christians should devote extraordinary efforts to public action. We must guard against the reverse blind spot of the pro-abortion movement. And what I mean by that is this. I see a a gaping blind spot in the pro-abortion defense. They talk much about compassion upon women in crisis pregnancies. And they talk much about the miseries that many unwanted children experience. But they never talk about the pain the indignity, the injustice, and the brutality that befalls an unborn child in abortion. Now, one of the reasons we put in your worship folder, and we didn't quite have enough to go around, so I don't know whether all of you have one of these, but I think most of you do, is just just to hold up these two little pictures on the inside here and point out something. Uh, This picture here is of a 12-week-old unborn baby, and this one is of a 17-week unborn baby, and um, 
Virtually everyone agrees, and I called up a doctor to make sure I was getting this right, and I read a couple of books, that about 10% of the abortions in America are done this age or after. That's about 150,000 a year or four or 500 a day. And the way they're done, almost all of them, are by suction machines that pull them apart limb by limb and then crush their heads. Stack it up on a little table and somebody goes through to make sure all the pieces are out. Now, if you back up just four weeks to eight weeks where you still have brain waves, a heart that's been beating for two weeks, a baby that grasps, sucks his thumb, feels pain, swims in the amniotic fluid at eight weeks, almost all abortions are done after that. Because it takes a while for a woman to realize she's pregnant, especially if she doesn't want to be and it doesn't expect to be, and then a while to make the appointment and then a while to make the decision to get it done, and therefore... It's the, it's the exception that happens much earlier than eight weeks. So you, what you see when I use the words brutal, painful, undignified, and unjust, these are not words that are calculated as emotional overstatements. They are words that are grasping after adequate descriptions of a horrific act none of us could imagine if we were to watch it on video, or get inside the womb. The word justice I put in because even though I don't take time to unfold it this morning, I did in the star this week. And that's my best effort at giving a non-religiously grounded argument that would hold in the public sphere. And if any of you thinks there's a flaw in the three arguments in the star this week, I want to hear about it. Because I think those are arguments on which we can stand with anybody, whether they're Christians or not. Those are common conceptions of justice in our culture. Now, back to this point of a blind spot. I think there's a blind spot there in not reckoning with the misery Injustice, brutality done to the unborn. Now, one of the primary defenses of the pro-abortion people is to say to people like me, and I got a letter like this from one of our young women this week who said she had a conversation like this at work, namely to nullify our cause by saying, you people don't care about women and you don't care about babies after they're born. You don't do anything but march and sit in front of doors and so on. Now, when I hear that, I have several responses. One is to try to very humbly say, look, why don't we both admit that we're imperfect and that there are thousands of pro-abortion people who do nothing for women and there are thousands of pro-life people who do nothing for women. Can we, just, can we just admit that? And then step back and try to be a little more accurate about whether the movement as a whole, that is the pro-life movement as a whole, is as guilty as they say it is for being narrow in its concern. Now, let me just suggest that it's not true. And I'll, I'll leave some of the research up to you. I don't believe it's true. I don't think research will bear out the fact that pro-life people spend all their time in the streets. In fact, they spend very little time in the streets. 
And almost all their time is spent in a broad range of ministries from the time a woman is a teenager or even earlier in the pro-family movement to long after the abortion. Now here, for example, is a list of 30 agencies in Minnesota. 30 agencies devoted to the broad range of concern about uh, sexuality, about education, about counseling, about care, about adoption, about helping with children after they're born, the whole range. And here there are 30 of them, and under some of them, 15 locations. Now, you can get this sheet. I'm not sure whether there's a pile of them out there or not, but they're not. there's no secret. These are available. And I just don't think that it's true that the pro-life movement as a whole is narrow. Uh, add to that the fact that there are major evangelical groups nationwide and coalitions of evangelical groups that are engaged at every level of government laboring in a, in a holistic family orientation. That is, what strengthens people from youth to age in the family structures of our society? working hard to create the milieu and the structures in which there can be wholeness and happiness and freedom and justice. And then add to that this, which is the most important and will not be acknowledged by unbelievers, but which, if you're a believer, I hope you will agree with. Namely, that week in and week out, impulses for integrity, honesty, decency, justice, purity, and love flow out into this society through thousands upon thousands of Bible-based, Christ-exalting churches. Now, it's easy to throw rocks at the church, but if you were to take away the leavening effect of tens of thousands of gospel-preaching, Bible-based churches from this society, the rock would expand so fast, according to Jesus' statement that we're the salt of the earth, that it would be almost unimaginable. Now, that will never be admitted. But in your own conscience, you should be able to say you are part of a movement that exerts a tremendous force for honesty, integrity, and uprightness in this culture. The accusation that is used against us, I believe, is most often a tactic to fog the real issue, which is the injustice of the pro-abortion premise. And that premise is very simple. It goes like this. The right of a woman not to be pregnant is greater than the right of a baby not to be killed. That is the pro-abortion premise. The right of a woman not to be pregnant is greater than the right of a baby not to be killed. I disagree with that. I think it's a heinous Foundation. I don't think it's true. That is concealed by saying we're not doing anything and directed away from what the real issue is. I've engaged in so many conversations. While I was in jail, I had this great conversation. And I had, I've taken an abortionist out to lunch twice who did, until he went to California a few weeks ago, did 15 abortions every Thursday down here at the Midwest Clinic, five blocks from here trying to understand what makes this man tick. And so I know a little bit about the kind of rhetoric that diverts attention from the basic issue. 
You can add to your conversation with people things like this. There are now two million people, couples, waiting to adopt children in this country. Sixty homes for every baby that could be adopted. There are lists, long lists of parents ready to adopt Down syndrome babies. Long lists. There are 100 couples right now on the list ready to take any spina bifida baby, no matter how severe the case. Now, I'm getting these facts, by the way, from uh, this book, Abortion Questions and Answers, updated last year, 1988. And the reason I I count on them is because there are addresses with them where you can write to the Spina Bifida Association, the Down Syndrome Association, and just check whether these things are so or not. We have several of these. They might be gone now out on the table. This is a very helpful little book, just question after question to ask. The reason it is difficult, and there are so many tie-ups in adopting mixed race and minority Children is not because there are inadequate pro-life parents. It is because there are legal entanglements, there are parental rights, there are agency rules that simply make it very, very hard. We are not suffering in this country from a lack of homes for children. Open, wanting homes. That's not, that's a subterfuge. You should not let the conversation go in that direction and say, well, I guess I better not do anything since we're all so guilty that we haven't done what we should do. That's just not true. So my point is, um, let's just avoid a blind spot. I encourage the pro-abortion people to avoid their blind spot concerning the unborn. And I encourage us to avoid any and every blind spot that we may have. And we should both just admit that there are a lot of people who would claim to be pro-abortion and pro-life who do nothing. But that kind of statement does not indict the movement as a whole. Now, what I want to do is uh, address this morning the nonviolent, peaceful protesting that has been called the rescue movement. And the reason I've begun the way I've begun is because I want you to see that the rescue movement or peaceful, nonviolent, prayerful protests are one part of the pro-life puzzle. It is not the only part. I don't think it's the most important part. I do think it is a good catalyst. I think it has proved to be statistically in the last two years. And the point I want to make this morning is I believe a Christian can biblically, with a clear conscience, participate. And I want to try to lay that out for you and hold open the opportunity that the Lord may call some of you to be trained this afternoon at four and to participate tomorrow in the rescue. Now, I only have a few minutes to say a few things, and so let me refer you back to last year's message, which is contained in the little booklet, Abortion, a Pastor's Perspective, which is out on the table, where I develop in much more detail than I'm going to do this morning the foundation for participation in the rescue movement. I have one specific kind of challenge. to It's a kind of seed thought this morning that I hope you'll take out of here and say, hmm, I feel inspired by that text, but I wonder. Is that going to relate in my life to this issue? There is a rescue being planned now, tomorrow. And let me tell you 
what it means for some of us to participate in this. What you do in a rescue is sit down in front of a door behind which babies are destroyed. You sit down in front of that door and you say by your physical presence, what happens behind these doors is so unjust and so painful and so brutal, so violent, so inhumane, so contrary to the foundations of our country's laws that today we are willing to risk arrest if we could save one baby or if we could just heighten the sense of urgency in this society that these children must be protected by law. That's all. I don't think there's anything real new or fancy about this. It's the same kind of reasoning and rationale that has been used for public, peaceful, nonviolent demonstrations for 30, 40 years in America. Can this kind of public demonstration of compassion for the unborn uh, be a sign of the kingdom? I want to ask it that way this morning. Can the kingdom today genuinely, authentically, biblically, faithfully shine into the darkness of our culture in the form of civil disobedience that is peaceful and nonviolent and prayerful and meek and ready to suffer? And my answer is yes. And I want to take you to Hebrews 10.32 and challenge you with a vision from what happened a couple thousand years ago and whether you think it might be time for something on this order to happen today, tomorrow. Hebrews 10.32. In the early days of this community, there was a hard struggle with sufferings. The verse says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, I don't know what caused this persecution except that uh, it's related to their Christianity. They endured a hard struggle with sufferings, and it's an official persecution. And the reason I know that, that it's official, that is, it's related to the state or the government in some way, is because in the next verse, uh, it's, it, part of it is that they're in prison. It's not, it's not just mob violence or harassment in the community. The officials have been antagonized and are angry and upset at whatever they've done here and are throwing them in jail. Then verse 33 describes two ways of suffering or two groups of people suffering in different ways. First, one is suffering abuse and affliction, and the second one is suffering because they somehow get identified with the first group voluntarily. Let's read that verse. Sometimes being public, ex publicly exposed to abuse or um, that's verbal abuse and affliction, that's physical. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you see, some were, got the first brunt of the persecution and others uh, aligned, aligned themselves with, became partners with them, and then they got into trouble. By doing that. Now, what we call that today, the, the modern word for that alignment is solidarity. The second group declared solidarity with the first group. And then what was happening to the first group began to fall on the second group. And they chose to do that. We'll see in the next verse. This was a, a conscious choice 
to get aligned with them and identified with them. So verse 34 explains how this happens. For you had compassion. Here's the reason it happens. If they didn't have compassion, it didn't have to happen. But you had compassion on the prisoners. And you joyfully accepted the plundering or the confiscation of your property. So the first group had been put in jail. And they're prisoners now. And the second group faces the question. Shall we work through indirect channels that are acceptable and non-antagonistic in order to try to get them free? Or shall we just go down there to the prison and just walk in there and take them the food they need and and mend their wounds and, and risk the antagonism of the officials? That's the question they had to face. And, and they chose the latter. They chose to take a risk of public, compassionate identification with the prisoners. And, and the result was that they got their possessions taken away. So it was a great risk for these people to suffer unjustly by aligning themselves with this, those who were suffering unjustly. How did they do this? Well, the last phrase in the verse says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully. Now, how could they do that? Can you imagine such a thing? I mean, as you contemplate uh, being fined $750 and going to jail for 30 days, do do you say, well, that would be wonderful. I mean, how could they do this? What's wrong with these people? Are they sick in the head? Where did this joy come from that was willing to rejoice that they... The, the officials took their houses, shut them down. Um, well, the answer is given real clearly right here at the end of the verse. You, you were able to do this joyfully since, here's the ground of their joy and the source of it, you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, what's that? Well, Hebrews 12:28 says, "Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken." Now, we're in the midst of a sermon series called Compassion, Power, and the Kingdom of God. And so what I'm looking for is is a paradigm in the New Testament for how kingdom produces power to be compassionate. And this is it. How did these people become powerful to laugh and rejoice that their goods were taken away while they walked the Calvary Road toward the kingdom into the jail? Answer, hope in the kingdom of God. They they stood there like this. They were between two things. The kingdom was over here in the future, breaking in, as it were, with hope and joy. And it was an unshakable kingdom, full of confidence. And over here were people in jail, suffering. Maybe they weren't being fed. Maybe they were being beaten. They were us, our flesh and bone, suffering, being mistreated unjustly. Shouldn't be there. It's not right that they're there. And they look back and forth here. And the power to turn like this, walk into the jaws of the lion, accept the plundering of their property to minister to those in need, came from that kingdom. This is so clear on the face of this text. 
that the inheritance is so glorious that it frees them from selfishness and fear and creates courage. What did Jesus say? Blessed are you, or blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the what? Kingdom. And then it goes on to say, rejoice and be glad in that day, for great is your what? Reward in heaven. It's the same dynamic as working right here. In other words, here's the people who learn from Jesus where the power to love and be compassionate at great cost to yourself comes from. It comes from the future. It comes from the kingdom. It comes from the unshakableness of blessing. Oh, what a different kind of people Christians should be. That's why I just strive with you to be free from the love of money. Strive with you to be free from the love of possessions and computers, toys and vacations and everything that would make you like everybody else. Just to be radically free so that let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His what? Kingdom is forever. Luther knew what it was all about. He could stand right there in the face of the lions and say, Here I stand, I can do no other. And it could have cost him his life. There are many chances in America today to do that, but this is one. The truth and the beauty of the kingdom of God satisfying the soul of a pilgrim is the power of courage to love and be compassionate, even if it's costly. Now, here's a question. Suppose you had been back there, and uh, before you went down to the prison, you had a little discussion meeting. You got the church together. And uh, suppose one group said, "I, I don't think we should... I, don't, I know that the Bible says, uh, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I know that right here in Hebrews 13, 3, it says, remember those who are prisoners because they are one flesh with you. I know that, but the Bible does not tell us what strategy to use. And I just don't think the Bible would condone, condone antagonizing the authorities in this way. I, I think we ought to use... Uh, only means that are indirect and go through channels that are established to try to minister and help to those who are being uh, imprisoned and treated unjustly. And besides, this government is ordained of God. We know that. We've learned it from the apostles, and we're supposed to be submissive to this government. And there isn't any explicit biblical command that says, at risk to your own furniture and house, this day, in this way, you should go down there and visit them. I mean, there may be other ways to do this. And not only that, but if we identify publicly with these people, it's going to make our society very mad, and that's going to jeopardize our witness. And not only that, we could get all of our possessions taken away, and then how would we minister? Now, how would you respond to that sort of line of reasoning if you had been there? There is no biblical command that says tomorrow you have to rescue. You're told to love and to care and to work for justice, but you're not told that tomorrow morning you should risk arrest and sit down in front of some door. You're not told that. 
Just like they weren't told that this was the way to love the prisoners in prison. Uh, You will antagonize some officials, not all of them. Some are very supportive. Uh, Just like every just cause has caused antagonism in some and always will. You will antagonize some officials. Yes, there will be some in the society who will make fun of you and calls you all kinds of names. And uh, and yes, uh, you risk losing some of your possessions in fines and some of your time in prison. That's true. But there they went, off to the jail to visit. With the blessing of Almighty God upon them and with the scriptural endorsement upon them. There they went. And many of us will go tomorrow. The reason that we will do this and the reason that they were willing to do this is because, very simply, when the compassion of Christ unites with the confidence of the kingdom, the result is risk-taking, ready-to-suffer courage to love. Compassion plus confidence equals courage. Then courage, of course, is not the absence of fear, as you've read in many little knickknacks over at Northwestern Bookstore. It is the power to act against fear and in spite of the butterflies. So I simply very much now repeat what I said at the beginning. Not everyone is called to rescue. All I want you to do this afternoon is to read this text again and pray. You won't know if you're called unless you ask God if you're called. And then those in whom he moves, the way he must have moved in some here, you could come at 4 o'clock this afternoon and we'll go further with our preparation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my greatest concern in this message is to inspire your people to live off the kingdom, to drink from the kingdom and eat from the kingdom, to be entertained by the kingdom empowered by the kingdom, comforted by the kingdom, to find their treasure in the kingdom, and thus to be pilgrims, aliens, sojourners, risk-taking, ready-to-suffer, obedient, radical, kingdom shiners in this world. Oh, God, let your light shine. If people are not called to participate in the peaceful prayerful, nonviolent demonstration of life. Oh, might they give themselves to extraordinary intercession tomorrow. And oh, might they engage at some level with heart-wrenching urgency for the great injustice being per- perpetrated in our day. Father, we seek your protection. We seek your humility, your lowliness. And we ask you to move.
upon us. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.